to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join us every other week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. I'm Kayla Fratt, and I'm joined today by Erin Jones, who is getting her PhD in some aspect of dog behavior and dog-human connection. We're going to let her talk to us about it a little bit more. Um, and today we are talking about consent in dogs. So welcome to the podcast, Erin. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, we're really thrilled to have you. And um, we're going to let you go ahead and introduce yourself. But first, I've got a couple quick announcements for our listeners. As our listeners know, this podcast is supported through Patreon, which you can join for as little as $3 a month. Our patrons get to submit questions, which we answer at the end of every episode. And um, they can also join in some other fun perks like lives and just asking all sorts of good questions and engaging with us further. So you can join that conversation over at patreon.com slash canineconvos. So I also wanted to highlight a couple reviews because I've been finding them very, very reinforcing lately. I've been working um, a lot and have found myself editing podcasts at 11 p.m. on Friday far too often. So I really appreciate when people take the time to review the podcast. We're going to read two today. One is from D4720472. I hope that's not their phone number. And they say, I'm pretty picky about podcasts, both with their content and their audio quality. Canine Conversations does such a great job with both. Really informative episodes, some great interviews, and lots of tips and tricks that I've put into practice with my two dogs. I also appreciate how frequently episodes are released. I love to listen on our decompression walks. So that's awesome. Um, Hello to you while you're out on your decompression walk. And our next interview, or our next review is from Mushu, with a lot of views. And they say, I wanted more information on dog training for my reactive dog, but this podcast has provided so, so much more. I love the scientific-minded approach to dog behavior and the honesty about the frustration and mistakes you can make while training. It's a really good resource for learning about cruelty-free training, and I wish I'd found it sooner. As someone who has very regrettably used punishment-based training in the past, this podcast has really helped me see how unnecessary and unhelpful it is. These women are so smart, educated, kind-hearted, and have such cute senses of humor, and I highly recommend this podcast to all dog owners. So um, both of those just make me feel happy, and we've got to, you know, we've got to reinforce ourselves too. Um, So, Erin, thank you for sitting through all of that. Why don't we go ahead and give you a um, a brief introduction. Tell us about your work, um, your business as it's relevant, and um, of course, tell us a little bit about Lil June. Absolutely. So I am a Canadian living in New Zealand. (laughs) I'm doing my PhD at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch. And my research is um, in human animal studies. So I'm actually looking at the dog-human interaction or relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, My focus with that research has kind of changed since I started, but I'm, I'm getting sort of closer to the end of my PhD now. And I'm, I'm really sort of delving into the ideas around autonomy, consent, and choice, and how that's related to our expectations of our dogs and the social construction of dogs. So how we perceive dogs or think dogs should behave in a particular way um, and how that's been constructed over time within our society. Um, And 
I live here with my dog, Juno, who's also really influential with my research. She's Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, two now, but she's a very anxious little dog. Um, She was a very anxious puppy, very fearful. And it made me really think a lot more about consent and providing choices, especially for an anxious dog, because that's very empowering and very helpful, which we'll be talking about today. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, she's really been influential to me in my research. Yeah, yeah. And she's she's so adorable and seems like just a <laughs> lot of fun even. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so funny with social media where I feel like I see so much of Juno all the time. And um, <laughs> you, if you didn't ask, you wouldn't necessarily know that um, she's got more more concerns than we would like in the world absolutely Um, yeah all right so let's dive in with the very the big first question you know um what is consent and the the definition that we pulled from the dictionary is that consent is permission for something to happen or agreement to do something but what does this really mean in a training scenario do we have different definitions when it comes to dogs um you know we'll start there Yeah, I think we need a different definition or we need a different sort of, um, not just definition, but a different outline of what that might look like. Because if we're thinking about consent in the human world, we're thinking more about informed consent. And dogs aren't necessarily able to give us informed consent in the same way. But they're able to give consent in different ways. And I think we need Mm -hmm. to start to look at that from their perspective. Mm -hmm. Some things we can think about um, when it comes to training or interacting with our dogs on a daily basis. So not just training scenarios, but, you know, when we're going for walks or when we're playing or when we're just cuddling on the couch, you know, we need to look at whether the dog is willingly participating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that probably depends. I think that most dogs know what they want and what they don't want. So when it comes to things like petting, they learn that certain actions will lead to certain interactions. So, for example, you know, that the head nudge or the pawing, Uh those types of things to solicit our attention or our pets. Um, And I think through also through cooperative behaviors. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, through cooperative care. So um, if we're careful with how we teach these start button behaviors and stop button behaviors and how we um, treat them as well, we um, were able to be clear about our intentions. Then I think, sure, that the dog can understand what they're consenting to in those situations because we've practiced those. You know, we say you do X behavior and this is going to happen. And I think communication is a big part of that, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's it's making things very clear that there's going to be a chain of events that's going to take place Mm -hmm. and that you are able to say, I'm not interested in participating in this right now. So as long as we're truly offering an opt-out option, (laughs) which 
you know, I think sometimes when I when I see these videos posted on th- on social media and whatnot, I think there's you know sometimes it's not as um, as clear as it should be, or we're just sort of teaching you know a start button behavior, but there's no real option to opt out, or the consequences in, is not equal for the mm-hmm. opt-out and the opting in, which it needs to be if we're truly asking them to consent. You know, yeah. I can't just reward an opt-in behavior and not reward if they opt out of that behavior. Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I just, I, 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 th- I have seen it done poorly. And, you know, I think we just have to understand that the behavior isn't contingent on a particular behavior and expected reinforcement. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad that the first thing we started with there, because we just covered a lot. Um, I think you've hinted at most of the questions we were going to be getting to. Um, (laughs) But one of the first things you said is that, you know, how do we get informed consent from our animals or can we even? Um, And I think, so um, full disclosure, we originally recorded this podcast with Ursa like a month ago and the audio was so bad that we weren't able to use it. And that was one of the first things that she and I got really stuck on. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the, let's try to bring that to an example. So if I am working on cooperative care with my dog and I have a brush and a nail trim out and my dog is at different levels of comfort with each of those tools, I need to think of a way to make it clear to my dog, which we're about to practice so that he could actually accept or reject that that um that offering um i know for my dog barley he actually really enjoys getting brushed Uh, my puppy niffler does not he uh squirms and runs away and thinks that thinks that i'm doing something terrible to his butt um And then the, the opposite is true with nail trims. Niffler tolerates them pretty well. Um, he, you know, he doesn't love getting them done. Um, I wouldn't say we've trained fully cooperative care with them at all, but he, he tolerates it and Barley does not. Um, and luckily he's active enough that I, nail trims are very, very infrequent for us. But so I'm just kind of thinking of an example here where it, it does really matter to, to, ask, to let your dog know what he's signing up for. So I don't know if you have any ideas of how you can actually set up those scenarios in a practical way to help your dog understand what they're potentially signing up for. Yeah. Um, so I think when it comes to, I, and when I was doing my research, this is where a lot of people got kind of, well, I don't know, can a dog really consent? Because in, Mm -hmm. again, in the human world, we think of informed consent, you know, you have all of the information and you're then able to make a decision of whether or not you want to participate. Mm -hmm. I think first we need to think, um, you know, if they don't have all the information, does that really matter? Can they still opt out of the, you know, of the situation? Mm -hmm. And I think it, first of all, it probably depends on what the situation is because of course we have the foresight to, you know, make informed decisions for our dogs that might benefit them. So, you know, um, especially when it comes to things like medical procedures or, um, 
um, you know, medication or something like that, they can't necessarily have all of the information or would they understand all of that information, but we can make an informed decision that is helpful for them. So there's this idea um, in a book I read recently. Um, it's called Zoopolis and it's by Donaldson and Kim Licka. And mm-hmm. it's, um, so they talk about something called dependent agency. Okay. And so this is uh, meaning that agency is facilitated through our relationships. So they, you know, we're there, we're able to act on in their best interest. So with trusted humans who have both their willingness, skill and knowledge to assist with the expression of their agency. And I think this is really important because of course there's going to be those decisions that we can't inform our dogs what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we need to be able to assess every situation independently and thoughtfully and meaningfully in a way that's going to benefit them and from their point of view rather than from our own. What you know, rather than thinking about what's more convenient for us. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, I do think that in some situations, like your example with brushing and nail trims, we can provide some information. Um, so I think that if we're providing that kind of information, like I have a brush, do you want to participate in being brushed right now? Um, they are able to, you know, show that they have a preferred option there. Yeah. Um, so I think it's going to depend on the situation, mm-hmm. whether, whether they're able to, you know, see what's going to happen or what's not going to happen. And it comes down to training, right? So it's, it's what they've learned, what those antecedents are. Okay, well, mom gets the brush out and that means I'm going to potentially be brushed. Yeah. Um, so those antecedents predict um, the following behaviors from us or from their environment and they're able to get information from that and then decide whether they want to participate or not participate. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think the, what was it that you said from the, uh, from the Donaldson book? dependent agency dependent agency i mean it reminds me in some ways of having been um an outdoor adventure sort of leader and you know these times where you have to think about you know medical care for someone who may be incapacitated and you know you have to think through these different things of how much consent are they able to offer um you're always trying to get it however you can um are you actually in a position to make a decision for them? Like if, if you're a camp counselor, there's probably some amount of legal signing over that has happened where you're protected for that versus you're a bystander trying to make those decisions. So it's, I, I, I don't know, do you know if any of the literature is kind of based on some of those sorts of paradigms? Um, well, I mean, there's a lot, most of the literature out there on things like consent in non-human animals is, um, very theory based. So we're looking at animal rights theory mostly and, um, the information that we have 
um, applied to philosophy. And, but okay. I mean, that's really important information. You know, it gives us a, a basis for understanding. And so a lot of that information, however, is coming from humans. Like, uh, can we compare humans or what kind of humans can we compare to dogs? Children, right. can we compare children and dogs? Um, yeah. I guess to, to a degree, right? Because children are dependent on us. Dogs are also dependent on yeah. us. Um, dogs do grow up to be adults <laughs> and are still dependent on us, unlike children. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think what we need to think about doing is providing as much agency as we can as they grow older and as they gain that information. So if we're providing them with the correct skills um, to learn to navigate their environment, then they're going to have more agency as, as adult dogs. If we don't provide mm -hmm. them with that information, then we're still just going to have to micromanage them forever. And that's, gotcha. yeah. you know, yeah, it's not, it's not really, it's not really fair because then, you know, they don't have the ability to make choices and they don't have the freedom that comes with having those, that skill set. But I think your example of, you know, being a camp counselor and working with those children is a good one because the idea behind that is that you're providing them with lots of opportunities for them to learn skills on their own to help them um, be more independent. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the same thing that we want to do for our dogs as well. Um, and then again, if you know, you have greater knowledge about a situation, <laughs> you might be able to step in and prevent something bad from happening, which right. again is what we want to, to be able to do for our dogs. So it's yeah. kind of this balancing act of, you know, providing agency and providing them choices and mm -hmm. still keeping them safe and everybody else safe. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so I'm a little curious as well. I think we're just going to end up jumping around a lot in this conversation just because there's so <laughs> much so. and your answers are so detailed. There's so much there's so much to unpack here. Um, um so one of the other things you said in your initial definition of consent was that we have to make sure that the incentives are equal to do something or not do something. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> uh, I, I get, I get that. Yeah. And I, I know I'm even sitting here and kind of thinking like, okay, how I do nail trims is my dog gets treats for staying still. And then there's a nail, mm -hmm. you know, the nail trimmer involved. Um, and he gets treats for, um, giving me his paw for me, touching his paw for all the different steps in relation to a nail trim, um, but I'm not giving him treats for choosing to move away. So how, how do we set up our training in a way? So something that is for most dogs kind of inherently unpleasant. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm genuinely asking, I'm not sure how I would set up a training yeah. scenario to get Barley to opt into a nail trim if he got, if he got the same incentive either way. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> or can we, you know, can we even do that? In a similar vein is when we're using positive reinforcement to train our dogs, um, 
is it core? Is it coercion? You know, are we? Yeah. Are we actually being coercive? Um, mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> I mean, okay. So I think the variables of motivation, um, according to so I've I've read this. There's this great um, veterinarian and ethicist out there named Dr. James Yates. And he says, if we're talking about training, so operant conditioning paradigms suggest that animals will be motivated to obtain what they'll enjoy Mm -hmm. and avoid what they dislike, while the existence of emotions such as satisfaction, relief, and frustration suggest that animals will enjoy satisfying their motivations and dislike from being them being frustrated. So therefore fulfilling animals choices ought to lead to feelings of pleasantness and avoid unpleasant ones. And motivation is something people can observe with their dogs in Mm -hmm. their own lives as a tool to elevate preferences. Um, So respecting a dog's right to consent is intimately related to training in two ways. So first, both dogs and human companions need to be educated in a shared language Mm -hmm. so that both sides can communicate, just like kind of what we were talking about before, um, with, you know, making sure that our dogs have the information that they need and, and it's clear. Um, and you know, it's important that we have that communication that we, that, you know, we, we know what they need and they know what we need mm-hmm. or that what we're asking. So um, whether that's learning to ring a bell to go outside or provide a verbal cue to get off the bed or move over, training allows mm-hmm. that dog to express themselves proactively and humans yeah. to communicate clearly when they need to. So it reduces or even eliminates any ambiguity that may cause um, any frustration or stress. Gotcha. And yeah. Yeah. And secondly, the goal of training should be to help dogs flourish in their environment, obviously. So that, you know, that's sort of our goal as, as dog trainers and dog behavior consultants. Mm-hmm. We want them to flourish in their environment and training should not be done from, for speciesist reasons. So meaning we don't want to be too anthropocentric or we don't want to do it from a, a viewpoint that we need them to behave in a particular way that's convenient for us um, or for our own comfort. And historically that's been the case. So yeah, certainly. Yeah. There, Oh, there's an amazing book out there called the genealogy of obedience. And um, it's, it's, it's heavy. It's academic and it's heavy, but it's so good. Um, and it goes through the whole history of where training has come from. And, and it looks at all of the different training manuals and books that have existed out there and, and sort of our progression from a more dominance based training to um, sort of crossover to a more progressive type of dog training. And um, I do highly recommend <laughs> any dog trainers yeah. out there to, to have a look at it. It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the goal of training should be to um, learn new skills in a way that are compatible with respecting a dog's choice to 
or right to walk away from any situation. And I think that we're still kind of stuck in this idea that we have to make them comply. <laughs> um, like yeah. it has to be done. Like it's not a question. It's a, it's a demand. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we're changing the language around it from, you know, command to cue, we're still, we still have this like idea that it has to, it has to happen a hundred percent of the time. There's no sort of dis- there's no uh, ability for the dog to necessarily choose to not sit if we say sit. Right. Well, and that's um, even it's in the definition of stimulus control. So even mm-hmm. when people are saying they're using a cue, you know, the very mm-hmm. definition of stimulus control is that it happens when the cue is given every time. Yeah. Yep. So, well, and I, yeah. I, I want to circle back a little bit to this idea yeah. of like, you know, when or if positive reinforcement can be, or any amount of training is kind of fundamentally coercive because any amount of yeah. training that you're doing, you have to set up these incentive structures mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to yeah. elicit something. Or, I mean, I, I, you know, capturing behavior, I suppose, maybe could be considered less coercive because you're seeing you're just rewarding something that the animal is offering on its own. So, you know, these paradigms that we talk about all the time on the podcast, like smart times 50. And I know one of the things I do, particularly with nail trims, actually, um, we're just going to keep hammering on the nail trim question because I I still can't trim my dog's nails. I'm a professional trainer. I've owned him for four years. I I can't do it. Um, Yeah. And, um, and luckily, again, he's active enough that it's just not an issue for us yet, but he's going to slow down as he gets older. Um, I intentionally do that after we're done with meals with really low value treats to try to make it as uncoercive as possible. Mm-hmm. If that, I don't think that's a real word, but everyone will catch my drift. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, you know, I intentionally don't use really, really high value treats. And I actually try to do the same in most cases where I'm working with, you know, any sort of counter conditioning for fearful or aggressive dogs. Um, you know, as much as possible, because at least that way I can feel, I I think I can feel a little bit more comfortable that the behaviors I'm seeing are, the animal is at least making a choice without too much desperation behind it, I hope. Yeah. You know, that's, that's yeah. something I try to do. And it's something I think about a lot in the ethics of the work I do as a conservation dog handler. Um, yeah. Because I am, you know, asking my dog to put in really long, hard hours of work. Um, and we do, you know, in these lines of work, we intentionally select dogs that in- enjoy this sort of work. But we also choose dogs that have, you know, this over-the-top toy drive, ball drive, play drive, whatever you want to call it, where these dogs will, you know, I, I honestly think if I threw a ball into the Colorado River at the base of the Grand Canyon, Barley might go after it. So if I'm using a ball that he cares about that much as a reward, is there any way for me to feel comfortable that he actually is truly consenting to something? Because it's equivalent to me asking you to do something for a billion dollars. Like, that's not a real choice in most cases. And I mean, again, one of the other things I think about with Barley is that we do, you know, the... it is manipulative, but we get all these carry-on, tag-along feelings about the ball towards the work. So he does seem to fundamentally really enjoy the work. Um, luckily, the work that we do also builds off of natural behaviors that dogs do. You know, the, hunt- yeah. the hunting and the searching is really natural for them. Um, and as much as possible, I try to train initial skills using food or lower value reinforcers and then 
add in those those wowza rewards once the dog has already learned it and st and to me that feels different from because what i could do i i think i could probably get barley to donate blood using a <laughs> tennis ball as a reward on our first right. try because he would be yeah. so desperate for the ball and he would do the border collie freeze thing and i think i could probably get him and that would feel very very different to me then teaching a behavior using shaping with low value food when he's satiated and then building up to a really high level reward to build that enthusiasm. But I wonder mm -hmm. if that's something that has come up in your research or in the literature anywhere as far as like just these potential like practical workarounds for us if we're really trying to think about how to do this well. I just wanted to clarify what I was um, thinking about when I was talking about equal consequences for it to be true consent in things like cooperative care. So I mentioned, you know, should there be equal consequence for opting in and opting out for it to be um, considered to be actually fully consensual and not coercion. So first of all, I absolutely do use <laughs> reinforcement in my training. I do think that payment and reinforcement is really important for learning. We know that through science. Science tells us that, you know, a strong reinforcement history is going to mean a strong um, learned behavior. You know, the more that we reinforce a behavior, the stronger that behavior gets. So I think it's really important, um, as Kayla was mentioning, captioning, that we're capturing those ideal behaviors that we see offered naturally from our dog. And I think oftentimes what happens is we focus so much on the negative things and fixing those negative behaviors, or I should say those undesired behaviors, um, that we sort of lose focus of all the good things that our dogs are doing and all those opportunities to um, for, for us to reinforce the, the things that we like naturally. So things like my dog checking in with me, I always you know pay her quite well for that. Um, for settling on a mat um, without me even telling her, sure, I'm gonna pay her well for that because I want to see that behavior occur more in the future. I'm also thinking that even though payment for a desired behavior might be incentive, and, you know, higher payment might mean more incentive, and that's okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that non-payment is always coercion, and it doesn't necessarily mean that a dog isn't consenting either. But I do think that we need to be careful that the incentive is actually payment rather than bribery, because as soon as we sort of step over into the realm of bribery, we're more likely to be coercive and we might be um, stepping over into this um, field of forcing our dog to do something because she really wants that reward. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's coercion, but our chances are greater that it might be. Uh well, I think that you brought up some good points. So one is making sure that our dogs' are, needs are met before we're, yeah. you know, actually asking them to do particular things. So when I first started training, there was this whole idea that, 
we should not feed our dogs before a training session and or just feed them half of their food or also things like timed feeding you know like you get 10 minutes to eat if you don't eat it all then it goes away and I, oh, I feel like that's so deeply unfair and I don't think I mean that's super coercive you know like we're saying you don't get all your food you have to work for your actual needs <laughs> for something that you need to have to survive you need to work for it and that's yeah. That's, I think, really one thing we need to think about. Um, not that, you know, I think enrichment is a great mm-hmm. way to to engage our dogs. And I think it's really important. And it offers our dogs options and choices and outlets and all of that stuff. But actually, and I, I think that, you know, training is part of that enrichment as well. You know, learning is, is enriching and trying new things is enriching. So using some of their food for training, I don't think is a bad thing at all. Um, but you know, deprivation is, so I think we need to be very careful and we need to make sure our dog's needs are, have been met before we're actually, um, asking them to participate. And also I think like if you were only using the high value ball reward for Burley um, when he did something that you wanted, then perhaps that would be considered more coercive than if you, which you probably do, play with him at other times as well, you know? So I think you're still... You're not saying the only time I'm ever going to play with you is if you do what I ask. It's right. more as a reward system. Like, hey, if you get to, if you do this, then yeah, you. I mean, and that's life, you know. So I think that there's a difference between learning opportunities and truly saying no, I don't want to do something. So mm. it might be a a bit hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's tricky for sure it makes me think quite a bit and and that's that's why I've gotten so drawn into all of this right because it yeah. really it's really applicable to working with dogs on a practical level and mm-hmm. it really does make you think but yeah like uh, positive reinforcement can be coercive because you are saying if you do this behavior you'll get something awesome but if you don't do it you don't get anything so you have to do it um which is which is problematic if we if we do that yeah i mean it's kind of where that like old you know we've talked a lot about you know nothing in life is free previously on this podcast and how we don't really use it and you know Mm -hmm. there are a lot of ways to make positive reinforcement more coercive than I think most of us are comfortable with. But I think it's really good to keep examining how to make it even more choice-based or consent-based than where it is right now. You know, I think very few of our listeners would feel really comfortable with just keeping their dog in the crate unless their dog is working or unless their dog is training. Um, Yeah. But I do think, like, I've, I've thought a lot lately about these, like, these really high-level reinforcers and using, I, I'm, I'm, de- I'm <laughs> how am I going to say this? I'm increasingly uncomfortable with using extremely high-value reinforcers 
and th- and this is where I'm the hypocrite, except in my work um, with, right. with Barley. And, you know, of course, I've got my excuse for that, where I'm like, this is our job. This is what we do. Um, you know, I think that I'm comfortable with how I'm training him. And as far as working dogs go, I think I'm one of the people I trust most with it. <laughs> but everyone probably thinks that <laughs> about themselves. Um, so... But yeah, I do think like thinking about your value of reinforcers in a way that feels very alien to a lot of positive reinforcement trainers. Um, yeah. And, and well, and then the interesting thing is, so I, you know, I have these, my, I've got my feet in three different worlds. So I guess I have three feet where <laughs> I have, I have the working dog stuff that I do with Barley and actually very soon with Niffler. He's been doing really well in his basics. I have the, you know, the private training, B-mod sort of stuff that I do, or, you know, my dog barks and lunges at skateboards, like that sort of stuff. And then I also currently work at a shelter, um, and in the past have worked um, at other shelters, or a other shelter. And um, one one of the interesting things I find there is that I do reach for the highest value reinforcers much, much more quickly in that shelter environment where you know, like, I, and there's much, much less choice and control and agency offered to those dogs. And I find that I have a sliding scale of ethics based on where I'm at and what the stakes are. You know, I feel much more uncomfortable with pushing Barley's limits with his comfort or with choice or control with work than I am with husbandry. And I feel less comfortable with hu- pushing him for husbandry than I do with a client's dog who's got big reactivity feelings and I feel even less comfortable there than I do with um you know a shelter dog where euthanasia might be on the line if that doesn't dog doesn't make progress and um and I don't know if I actually feel comfortable with the fact that my 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 ethics kind of scale a little and and you know it's all still very much so in that humane hierarchy positive reinforcement least intrusive minimally aversive force free whatever you want to call it methodology mm-hmm. but again with those shelter dogs I will very quickly reach for the highest value reinforcers I'm much quicker to use body blocking or leash pressure to move things move them around um and, uh, you know, we use like even just basic things like slip leads and like all of these sorts of things that I wouldn't necessarily use in other situations. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't think there's a question in there, but I'd love to hear your response to it. <laughs> well, I find that really interesting, actually. I feel a, like a research study coming on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. But I, I feel like that's I, I think that. I wonder, and I don't know for sure, but I wonder if that is because there's a greater expectation for you to um, get results uh, in the shelter environment so that those dogs can find homes and live happy, healthy lives or not be euthanized or whatever Mm -hmm. the situation is, right? There's There's a higher pressure on you to make a difference. Yes, um, I would say I, so. Yeah. And and the other uh, interesting thing is I think it's also very easy. And again, I'm not doing anything, you know, I'm not just slapping shot collars on dogs willy-nilly here. Right, right, right. But there still is this this feeling of like, well, if this dog, and, and this is much less so at the shelter that I'm currently at than the shelter I used to be at. But mm-hmm. there is, there was at that shelter definitely a feeling of, those dogs on average had about, um, 
they had about two weeks before they were reassessed in their training plan. And that, that two weeks could be extended out in theory indefinitely to continue getting more work. But if you knew you were on day seven of training and that dog was going to be getting reassessed and, you know, they got reassessed for their adoptability potential or whether they were going to go get transferred to another rescue or potentially be euthanized, um, it was so much easier with that, like, literal time, you know, ticking, not time bomb, but, you know, hourglass Mm -hmm. versus, you know, with, like, teaching my dog to (laughs) teach you. I've talked about this a couple of times. I've been trying to teach Barley this dumb selfie trick for a long time. Um, where he like comes and puts his head on my shoulder for a selfie. Um, yeah. <laughs> like I'm far, far less comfortable. Um, I wouldn't use like leash pressure to guide him into that or molding or anything like that because it just doesn't feel necessary. But I may reach for some of those those tools in the shelter more quickly because it does feel like I, I have to, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't think that you're alone. I think especially... Um, like even everyday dog caregivers who have a, say a reactive dog or something like that, they feel as though giving their dog a choice, you know, may lead to that dog choosing not to participate. And that shows that they have a lack of control and Mm -hmm. it comes right back to these ideas, these social constructions about what, how a dog should behave and, you know, what a responsible dog owner should look like. And when we feel like we have no control, then we feel like we've failed our dogs. We feel like, um, you know, that, that we're not good dog owners and that we aren't good trainers or those types of things. Even if we, you know, make a conscious effort to not think that way, it still seeps in, (laughs) you know, because it's so ingrained in our society that complete control and compliance is a good thing. And that means that dog is, is well-trained and happy. And that's not necessarily true at all. And I don't know how many people I've run into who have been like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. My dog is, is so bad. I don't want you to meet them. <laughs> and I'm like, honestly, I, it, I don't care. Like they no, should be yeah. who they want to be. <laughs> um, I don't, I'm not going to judge you on the amount of control that you have over your dog. Um, that's, you know, I think people feel judged a lot because that's sort of the way, especially in the training world, that's, that's the way that we've, that's the, the, um, the climate that we've sort of carved out for ourselves. <laughs> this is this yeah. sort of very judgmental, like it's your fault blaming type of, um, conversation that happens quite often. And I, and I think that's oh, yeah. really, there's, really harmful. You know, there's, only, there's no bad dogs, only bad owners. Like, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. so exactly. many things like that, that just are, yeah. are so full of, blame for owners and you know so and then and then i think it gets interesting as well when we're talking about you know reactivity or anxiety or some of these things where you know a lot of those dogs are experiencing discomfort and how do we balance you know the training that you're doing is to make your life easier to give you more control but it's also because, you know, if every time your dog sees another dog, they're having a meltdown, that's not a comfortable life for your dog. Yeah. Um, 
so, you know, thinking through how, you know, what your motivations are. And I know Sarah Strumming just had a great little post that she shared on Facebook kind of to this effect of, you know, we ask a lot of our dogs, we yep. put them through a lot. And sometimes potentially instead of embarking on a behavior modification plan with your dog who is scared of skateboards or scared of the garbage truck or whatever, what if instead you just didn't make them deal with it? Yeah. Um, and I feel like that can be really powerful and really freeing, um, you know, and obviously there are some things where that's not the, not an option. And I don't think that either one of us is trying to advocate for the idea of like your dog just gets to get into the trash whenever they want. Cause that's their favorite hobby. <laughs> and you know, they right. never have to get their nails trimmed they don't have to go to the vet and they want to bark at that squirrel and kill the neighbor's cat. That's fine. You know, I don't think either one of us is, <laughs> is trying to say that, um, <laughs> But, you know, um, yeah, maybe they don't have to deal with the garbage man. Maybe we just figure out how to set up their lives so that they don't have to deal with that. Maybe, you know, maybe maybe your dog, instead of trying to train your dog not to dig in the garden, maybe you let your dog get, dig elsewhere. You know, I do understand wanting to keep your rose bushes safe. I, um, and I, I, I don't know how that relates to... That's more about agency, I think, than it does to choice yeah. or control or consent, um, which are mm. three C's of yeah. everything. Um, and okay, gosh, we're really going to be going all over the place. This is just, it's so interesting. <laughs> and I'm not even looking at our notes anymore because I just, yeah. it's its so, I'm having so much fun. Um, one of the things that Kim Brophy and I talked about is, a little bit is this like paradox of choice and control, particularly with certain types of dogs. Um, and we did, you know, we said breeds, but I think this could also be applied to any sort of mixed breeds or, you know, individuals of any breed really. But we were, we were picking on border collies as, as we do on this mm -hmm. show. Mm -hmm. um, and talking about how, you know, there are times where giving our dogs direction seems to relieve some amount of stress and kind of constantly asking like, Hey, do you want to do this? Hey, do you want to do that? Hey, do you want to do this? Like, I know I've been in relationships where my boyfriend does that to me and I find it very stressful. And there are times where I just am like, can you just decide where we're going to go to eat? Can you just, can yeah. you one time, can you decide where we're going to go? Um, yeah. and I think sometimes some dogs probably experience some of that, particularly, uh, yeah, again, particularly certain types or personality types of dogs. Um, uh, and I can give an example in that last night, Niffler, um, my puppy, was sitting on the back of the couch and staring out the window and working himself up over something. Uh, and he wasn't mm -hmm. he wasn't panicking. He wasn't freaking out. He was just staring out the window and he'd been looking for about 20 minutes and he was clearly just kind of scanning and not napping. Um, and then every time something did move by, I don't know if it was bats or birds or something, he was just, you know, moving his head back and forth and kind of watching doggy TV. But, you know, I eventually, it was honestly bothering me. I was trying to read and I was just so worried that he was going to have a, a barking explosion. Yeah. Um, that I eventually redirected him and told him to go, um, you know, just told him to go lie on the bed instead of the couch. And, um, you know, rewarded him for that. And he just went to start to sleep as soon as I kind of took that off the table for him. Yep. And I wonder where that comes up, you know, again, as far as this, like this guardian model where, you know, sometimes us giving our dogs some amount of direction actually seems to be a relief for them. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, especially when I'm dealing with perhaps reactive dogs or, or that type of thing, mm -hmm. sometimes direction can be really 
um, helpful and also empowering and also teaching them some new skills as well. So I often will use a, let's go and we turn around and we go in a different direction. And so it's kind of, it has all these, it's multifaceted in that it teaches them that they, first of all, don't have to face whatever it is that is making them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's teaching them a new, you know, a new cue or skill that we are, you know, saying, let's go this way. This is what we're doing. This is how we're dealing with that situation. Um, you know, but I also think that sometimes we don't give our dogs enough choice in those situations either. So we tend to micromanage. So I think it's a balance, right? Because yeah. if we're starting to like grab them away, every dog we see before there's any like actual reaction or anything like that, especially then we're obviously going to start to make some negative associations. I think that choices can be incredibly empowering. Um, and, and it's really, really important to provide those choices. Um, and I see how much it's helped my own dog, especially with an anxious dog, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, you have the choice. If you don't want to go over there, we're just not going to go over there. If you don't want to go for a walk, we're just not going to go for one. Um, cause those aren't harmful decisions for her to make. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter to me if she doesn't want to go for a walk, then whatever that we won't go for a walk and that's okay because she's not feeling up to it. I'm not certainly not going to force something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. I was just, it, it like, it makes so much sense when we think like just thinking about like, is this something, and again, like, I think we could think of this similar to with her, you know, with kids, um, I, neither one of us is parent our parents, but you know, if, if my, if my child doesn't want to, uh, eat, finish their peas, you know, like the world isn't going to come crashing down if they want to, right. you know, that's okay. Um, and especially if they don't want to finish like their, their wonder bread or something where it doesn't even have nutritional yeah. value. Um, <laughs> yeah. but if they, if they want to, you know, walk on their hands across the sidewalk, that's probably not a choice I'm going to allow them to make. So, you know, again, it's kind of circling back to this idea of like, how harmful is this decision? Is it in the animal or child or whatever's best interest? And, you know, can we, how can we set up our incentive structure to reward the choices that we want without making those rewards so disproportionate that it's coercive? Right. I think it comes down to, to building a skill set, you know, making sure that, um, they have, we have like this bank of behaviors that we can pull from so that if we are faced with a situation like a reactive dog who is starting to kind of get too hyper-focused or starting to get tense or reach their threshold, that we're able to say, okay, this way, and we are able to successfully turn around and walk away from that without having to jerk them away. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think it's the same with, with children, um, teaching them, we're teaching them these successful coping skills so that they learn how to deal with those situations on their own, hopefully, <laughs> um, eventually. Yeah. And yeah, I think that that's really important. Although, you know, I teach kind of 
these more life-saving type of skills or these like foundation skills, I like to call them, more so than, you know, drilling things that don't matter. So for me, it's teaching things that will provide my dog more ability to make her own choices and more freedom and more agency in the long run. So things like wait and things mm-hmm. like come come when I call you because then I can provide her with more time off leash and in, and I know that she's safe in a, in a busier environment. Um, so there's certain skills that I, I like to focus on and then I can pull out of that skill set or the toolbox when I need those things because I've practiced yeah. them in easy situations. I think that's such a good, a good point in that, Oh my gosh, you made a really good point. I've already forgotten what it was because there were like four <laughs> things in there. Oh, yes. That's such a good point that, you know, if we're training these skills ahead of time and, you know, if in theory training doesn't necessarily, you know, training is inherently us manipulating the environment to get what we want out of our animals um, and we just kind of accept that, but... A well-behaved dog has more freedom. And again, like, so teaching Juno to wait or teaching my dog Barley, you know, a flying down, which is one of his things that he's really great at. Um, You know, I've been able to use that to pull it out of my back pocket when there's, when he's about to come across a rattlesnake. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, so A, it's a really, really important safety thing for him. Um, obviously, because rattlesnakes are no joke. Um, and I think I would take, I would, yeah, uh, you know, we don't have to get into that, but, um, but also, you know, the fact that we've worked so much on him being calm and collected in a variety of public spaces means that he doesn't have to get left at home very often because he can come with me to the coffee shop, you know, obviously in pre-COVID times, um, Mm -hmm. four times. Um, and he could come and do all of these different things with me. And, you know, while it was a lot of hard training, you know, A, I have a dog who likes to work. So I think just about any form of positive reinforcement training, he tends to enjoy it. You know, he, uh, he likes playing that game. That's part of why I like him and we get along so well. Um, and it has the ultimate effect of benefiting his life. So I think, you know, even when it's something that, in the moment, you know, he'd probably rather work on spin or nose work or something than work on, he's currently learning to wear his rec specs more cooperatively. Right. Um, But ultimately, it will benefit him because it will keep thorns and sand out of his eyes. Yeah. So that's, again, that's like a calculus that I'm comfortable with. So I know we actually have to start wrapping up here. Um, I think I would like to kind of finish on the the topic that we've skirted around a couple times already, but you know these these times and places where we cannot necessarily get consent, and you know, so what mm-hmm. can we do proactively to help make sure that our animals are set up for these more emergency situations and that they're less traumatic? And how do we handle it if something you know totally unexpected comes up, and we want to make it as untraumatic as possible for our pets? Um, okay. Well, first, I think that's really important because the idea of consent is about providing a choice and and accepting that choice. And when we don't accept that choice, then we're taking away from the trust bank. And that's mm-hmm. problematic for our relationship with our dogs and for communication because they're saying, oh, I told you, I 
didn't want to do this or I, and you made me do it anyway. Right. So if there's no option for that dog, then we shouldn't be providing an option. Yeah. Um, so for example, like you use the rattlesnake example. Um, I don't have that problem here, but like, I might <laughs> yeah, see like a chicken bone. Yeah, I know. Right. Um, but well, if there Judah would be chicken... about to chase, chase a kiwi, you yeah, know, that's, right, that's not right. an option. They're, they're highly right, endangered a... and very dumb. <laughs> that's right. Right. Yeah. And they don't fly. So, you know, there's no getting away. Um, so, you know, I know it, you know, she's probably clearly interested. In, well, actually, she's probably not interested in chasing them because we've worked hard on, on not chasing wildlife. Um, I mean, she might, I mean, overall, she's probably like, yeah, that would be really cool. But she's, she's also has a very strong leave it cue because we've practiced that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I can't respect her choice there in that situation to run and chase this kiwi and potentially injure this kiwi. It's just not an option. So um, I think it's a matter of constantly sort of analyzing these individual situations as they come up and then offering choices when and where it's safe to do so. But, you know, in the in the kiwi situation or the, the snake situation, I'm not going to offer that choice and hope she chooses to leave it. Um, yeah. Because, you know, in a perfect world, obviously she would. But, you know, that would, assuming that would set her up to fail and it would set the our communication that we have built up to fail. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it prevents her from, you know, from being able to say, nope, um, you know, like, I don't want to do this or I want to do this and you're not listening to what I want to do. And usually, you, you know, you offered me the choice. I could go chase this kiwi or I could come and take a, a liver treat from you and I chose to, to chase the kiwi, but then I got in trouble, even though you offered me that option. Yeah. So instead, like, like we talked about, we teach those skills um, or use management as much as we can um, to minimize the chances of any adversive interaction. Um, so, you know, teaching her things like leave it or this way or using a long lead in, you know, areas where there might be Kiwi or something like that. Yeah. But then I think we also need to provide choices when we can as, me- as much as we can so that, you know, we're still being able to, to, empower her um you know things like how far and fast we walk and where we go on our walks or Mm -hmm. you know those those types of things that it doesn't matter to me or it's not a life-threatening situation or it's not going to make a difference in the end right and and it's also assessing each situation as it comes so even though i know that you know she loves for example to snuggle and cuddle with me you know, I've also taught her, like, she doesn't always want to do that um, all of the time. Just like, I don't always want to. I might be busy and she wants to cuddle and I have to be like, no, Sorry. I'm recording this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, <laughs> but I've, you know, I've also taught her that she can ask for it and I'll pet her or she, or, you know, I can ask for it and she'll let me pet her or she'll, she'll interact mm-hmm. with me. But if one of us says no, but that's okay. And, 
you know, then nothing transpires from that. So she's learning that she can ask for things and also say no when, you know, when she doesn't want to do something and that will be respected. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I know one of the things that I was really surprised about when I when I first got Barley, um, well, I wasn't surprised about this part, but the second part. So he didn't really like being petted. He really, really didn't care for it. Mm. Um, and made it pretty obvious. And he still doesn't like getting petted generally by strangers. It's just really, really not his thing. Um, he will, it's so funny. He'll like run up to someone with a ball or a stick or a pine cone in his mouth, and drop it at their feet and then wag his tail. And then they'll always go, oh my God, he's so cute. And reach for the ball or whatever it is at their feet. And with their other hand, they reach over his head to touch him. And he will do this, mm. like, he does this like duck back up, scoot away move. And then just goes back to staring at the ball. It's so, it, he makes it so obvious what he actually wants um yep. but um now about four years into owning him um he is kind of cuddly um and what that really took was me kind of asking all the time not all the time you know i wasn't like can i pet you now can i pet you now can i pet you now because obviously <laughs> that would probably backfire yeah but a couple times a day it'd kind of come over and be like hey buddy you know, you want a belly rub, you want a butt scratch, you feel on a face rub, how about an ear massage? You know, and just kind of asking like one of those, one of those four questions yeah. a couple times a day. And if he didn't pretty obviously lean into it, I would just kind of move away and not, you know, not ask again, not bug him, not keep petting him just because he didn't move away, but actually mm -hmm. really looking for that like active that active consent, you know, it's so funny how much all yeah. of this just like overlaps with all of our uh, sex ed training. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and yeah, again, like four years into owning him, I would say he's actually at a pretty good level of cuddly. He's nowhere near as cuddly as Niffler and he's probably never going to be. It's just not his love language. Um, yeah. But I credit that pretty much entirely to how much work I did to really you know again not just like continue petting him because he wasn't moving away but really actually looking for him to enjoy it before i continued um mm -hmm. so yeah i think ahead. it was the same with juno um you know when when she was young and and i did a lot of hey do you want to do this right now and she if she said no then that was fine or you know there was a lot of times where she wanted to sit close to me but not be touched mm. and that was fine too and i think sometimes we let our um again our expectations get in the way or what we want, you know, <laughs> and we kind of force it on them and, or don't listen because it's, it's something that we want to do in that moment. And mm -hmm. people always laugh at me because every dog that I see, I completely ignore them. Like I, I shouldn't say completely ignore them, but if they come up to me, of course, um, and solicit my attention, I'll give it to them. But I'm not the type of person that will go yeah. up to ever a strange dog and talk to them or look at them or pet them. And I just wish that that was more of a common mm. occurrence. And yeah. my dog also doesn't like strangers. She's fine being around them, but she definitely doesn't want to be touched by anybody. Um, and, you know, I've, I've sort of come up with a few ways of making sure that that doesn't happen as much as I can. So that means like actively walking, giving space, you know, not engaging with people, 
with mm-hmm. my own body language kind of leaning away, interacting mm-hmm. and focusing on each other. Um, mm-hmm. And even, you know, she wears a bandana, like, don't pet me. Um, <laughs> just for those, for those few people that are like, still think that it's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I think there's ways that we can advocate for our, our dogs, but I, I hope that things start to change in society and we stop feeling as though we have the right to just go and touch any dog, any time. <laughs> yep. The only time I've been called a, uh, a bitch was when I asked someone not to pet my dog, um, mm. which is just... Mm-hmm kind of mind-blowing but okay so kind of uh let's try to summarize a little bit as we're wrapping up here so yeah um what i guess we've underlined a lot of our points over and over but i think one of the things that i've i don't think we've highlighted yet or underlined yet that i wanted to get out before we wrap up was just kind of this idea that at least i am comfortable with the with consent being dependent on the severity of the situation or asking Mm. for consent, whether or not I ask is going to be dependent on the severity of the situation, you know, like, uh, again, going back to like the rattlesnake extreme or even just like my dog barking in a public space where, you know, someone could, someone's baby could be napping. Um, -hmm. that is very different from my dog kind of being like, yeah, you know, I don't really want to go for a walk in the rain. Like, okay, cool. Um, as long as you're not going to pee on the floor, like, then, then that's yeah. fine. Um, but, you know, I, I think thinking about everything being a two-way street and, you know, the rights of the dog matter a lot more than I think most people think about. But then one of the the traps that I think I see some of my clients walking down occasionally, I've seen this happen with a couple of my puppy clients in particular, is they they get so focused on the idea of consent and choice for their puppy that they don't even want to use leash pressure to keep their puppy from eating a rotting seal carcass on the beach or Mm. something like that. And I think, you know, we do, I think as society as a whole, very much so needs to move more towards giving dogs more consent and control and agency and choice and all those things. Mm -hmm. But then I do feel like I also see people occasionally going, I don't even want to say too far in the other way, but but not taking safety and their dog's best interests into account enough when they're trying to offer all of this choice and control. So I don't know if you've got anything to say on that before we wrap up. Oh gosh. Well, I think yeah, you're right. Like I I I I feel like in New Zealand here, yeah, you're kind of one of two people. You're the super controlling one who constantly has their dog you know, tethered to them on a very short leash mm-hmm. or you're the one that's dog whose dog is wandering around the neighborhood every single day mm-hmm. <laughs> by themselves. <laughs> There's a lot of that. <laughs> um, and I don't think either are good, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, neither scenario is a good scenario there. Um, so again, I think it comes back to, you know, teaching coping skills and teaching life skills because yes unfortunately this is a very human-centric environment that our dogs Mm -hmm. are asked to navigate and they need to be able to live in this society with us um we need to be more accepting of that though we need to be more accepting of you know hey dogs they bark and they dig and they do things that dogs like to do and that's okay. Um, but we also need to um, be able to 
um, follow those rules in a safe manner, but in a, in the least, um, intrusive way that we can. So that mm-hmm. again, it comes back to teaching them alternative behaviors and making sure that their needs are met yeah, and, and making sure that outlets. they, yeah, giving them outlets to do those things that they want to do, um, to dig and to, to bark and to play rough if they like to play rough, if they have a friend that is okay with that. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, those yeah, types yeah. of things, <laughs> those types of things, um, you know, being able to provide those outlets is, is a massive piece of the puzzle. And I, f- I feel like a lot of people end up with, especially here in New Zealand, I find with a lot of like working breeds and, and then they, are at work all day and their dogs are home all day and they're bored and, and we see a lot of destructive behaviors and, and undesired behaviors, but those undesired behaviors are undesired because they're inconvenient for us or inconvenient for the people around us. So they're not necessarily something I would encourage by any stretch, but I think we need to teach first provide outlets and then, you know, teach the skills to do other things other than, you know, bark at the neighbors all day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, even like going back to, you know, barking at the neighbors all day, eh, some dogs that might be genuinely fun for them, but I would imagine some of those dogs, it's because they're stressed and they're oh, yeah, trying yeah. To, to scare someone away. So, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, my therapist will tell you that you don't necessarily want to just give someone the choice to like ruminate themselves to, to into insomnia forever um, with a human, right. you know, we would try to interrupt them and give them an alternative behavior to engage in. And like the same can go for our dogs. That's not, that's, that, that doesn't have to be in, in conflict with our goal of giving our dogs more choice and control. That's actually you know, part of, again, being good guardians for them and being like, hey, buddy, you are really working yourself up over your neighbor who has every right to be in his backyard. Um, yeah. Like, the barking isn't so much the problem. You know, your neighbor might disagree with me, but but the <laughs> problem here is actually that you're really worked up right now. And like, let's, that's right. Let's, let's work on dealing with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've tried to wrap this up like four times and I still want to go on for another <laughs> hour, but we, we do have to cut this off. I actually have another engagement to attend. Um, yes. So Aaron, where can people find you online? And um, if they're interested in learning more about you and your work and, or maybe just seeing cute photos of Juno. Um. <laughs> cute photos of Juno, um, always on my Instagram, Merit Dog. Um I'm also on Facebook, which is much more of my sort of professional um, business side of things. Although I, I try to make it an educational <laughs> platform. So um, more um, article sharing and <laughs> courses and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so that's at, um, that's Merit Dog Project on Facebook. So facebook.com backslash Merit Dog Project. No, Merit Dog. I think it's just Merit Dog. <laughs> and also my um, website has all my articles and, and webinars and all of that stuff on there, as well as my research. So you can check that out as well. It's MeritDogProject.com. Awesome. Yeah. And again, we'll make sure to link to all of that. And Erin, we um, we may or may not end up doing a part two of this. So why don't we, we'll get this published and we'll see what people think. Maybe we'll just do a big old Q&A or a, like, I don't get this sort of follow up um, after this is live. So thank you again so much for coming on. Um, and to all of our listeners, thanks for listening. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation half as much as I did. Um, 
We are Canine Conversations. You can find us, I mean, obviously just subscribe wherever you're listening, uh, share us with a friend, uh, like the uh, review of the podcast and consider joining our Patreon. Um, that is how we pay for our audio editing, um, which is done by the lovely, lovely Jenna. Um, she's amazing. And, uh, you know, it pays for our hosting fees and all sorts of that stuff. Um, it does not just unfortunately go into Barley's squeaky toy fund. Um, yet (laughs) so again thank you guys for listening Erin thanks for coming on thank you so much 